It was a uh, blessing to uh, have um, uh, Jim Hogue uh, help last Sunday to fill in and for Gary to help on um, Wednesday. I really do appreciate it. We had to uh, travel to North Carolina because uh, Kara's father was, had had some health issues and we wanted to go and, and visit and try to help them out. And uh, the trip was uh, successful and that we went and Kara helped them out and uh, we were back, praise the Lord, we're back. We, we got to watch the live stream, so we were here and uh, not really here, but we, we got to participate. And so that was, that was a neat experience. Uh, getting to see, you know, from what the people see on screen. And um, it, it, let me just say, it's a lot better being here than on the screen side, just in case anyone watching. Uh, it's, the, it's a lot better here, so you might as well just come. Uh, but uh, I praise the Lord for those who filled in while we were gone. Uh, we are also, if you notice, we ha are all decorated up for Christmas. Uh, that, that was really neat. It gets transformed and it looks so nice. I was uh, really hoping for a huge crowd of people to come and, and decorate everything, but God decided to use the miracle of Gideon, where uh, he used a, a handful of people to do all the work. So uh, praise the Lord. Thank you for those who came and, and uh, were helping and decorate everything. Everything looks so great, ready for the Christmas season. We're in Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be reading 27 through 50. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll be reading verses 27 through 50. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took a reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took a scarlet robe off of him and put on his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And they were coming out, and they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into the service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And, then, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuses uh, to abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. 
he trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. And he said, I am the Son of God. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we go over this text, as we look at this text, maybe the narrative is very familiar to us. Maybe we've had years of of listening to this text, but I pray now that your spirit would work in our minds so that we can see what is revealing of you, Father, revealing of your Son. Father, we know that it's your will that we be holy, that we be conformed to the image of your Son, and that you use your word and your spirit in our lives for that purpose. And I pray now that as we look at this text, your spirit would move in us to see those areas of our life that need to be changed, areas that we need to abandon, areas that need encouragement to continue doing. And we'll give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> have, you, uh, have you ever tried to determine if a product is good or not? Of course you have. We all do that. And what criteria would you use to determine if a product is good? Some might say, well, if the product fulfills its purpose, the purpose for which it was made, then the product is a good product. Uh, framing hammers uh, make for terrible cars, don't they? I mean, you can get on that thing, and you can try and try and try, but framing hammers make terrible cars. But, but they work pretty good for Nailing things, especially if you're framing a house, a building, etc. Uh, there's a purpose in it. And if it fulfills its purpose, then we say, well, it, it's a good product. Uh, now, if we were to use that to say for, for other things, maybe not something like a hammer, but maybe something else, we say, uh, for example, uh, how do you determine if your child is good? Well, you might use the same utilitarian process of saying, well, if he fulfills his purpose, Well, what's his purpose? Some might say, well, his purpose is that he doesn't bother me, or she doesn't bother me. If the kid doesn't make a mess in the house, he kind of just stays over there, quiet, you know, doesn't bother me, doesn't get into my stuff, and then he's a good kid. He's a real good kid. Is that the purpose of the child? Or or is there another purpose? How do we determine little Johnny's purpose in his life. Or or we can apply it to anything. You can apply it to a spouse. How do you know if the spouse is good? Well, if the spouse picks up his socks, uh, uh, then then he's a good spouse. Uh, Leave stuff thrown everywhere, he's a bad spouse. Uh, How do we judge this? Well, some, if we go back to the illustration of little Johnny and his purpose, some say that 
we're all born with this kind of a seed inside of us that we need to allow culture and, and, and um, nurture to come in and, and, and just cause that thing to blossom up and that each person has their own way and we, we need to come alongside people and help them go along their way. Uh, Solomon warns parents in Proverbs 22, verse 6. Um, it says, train up a child in the way uh, he should go. And, and that word way, it, it has a pronominal suffix, which is his way. So the idea is that if you train up a child in his way, so if, if the child is, is, is very self-centered, if you train up a child in his way, it's really hard to get them away from that. I mean, you'll see these adults super self-centered. Everything's about them. They don't understand sharing. They don't understand anything about anything else. It's hard to get them to depart from that. You, you train up a child to be centered on themselves. When they're adult, it's really hard to get them past that. They're not going to depart from it. So that idea of maybe causing them to just blossom isn't the best idea. Well, well maybe, maybe... A good child, if their purpose, we're trying to determine their purpose, maybe a, a good child uh, would be someone who has a good job. We, we educate the kid so that the kid can go out to get a good job. And if they get a, a good job, uh, then they are, are good. They have fulfilled their purpose. That's kind of reducing the child down to, to a, a piece, to a cog and a mechanism, isn't it? If you fit into the culture and you are able to work, and, and uh, th then you're good. And there's some little problems with that, because especially after 2020, uh, we've seen that there's a difference between essential workers and non-essential workers. So we say, let's train them in essential work so that they can continue having a job. And, and if we can give them certain specifications, then we'll ensure that they always have a job, and then they will be good. They will fulfill their purpose. Is that, is that why God gave you children? So that they could be working like that? Is that they could get a good job, maybe a good, stable, an essential job? Or maybe there's another purpose. Maybe you believe that God has given everyone a purpose to live a life that glorifies Him. So therefore, you educate, you model, you promote, you encourage, you exhort, you correct, all towards the purpose of little Johnny living a life that glorifies God. In, in the sense that he mimics what God does. That's what a life that glorifies God. He mimics how God acts. So you say he has fulfilled his purpose because as God acts, my little Johnny also acts that way too. Ah, there's a, there's a life with purpose. Now, it, we look at Jesus, and it, it's kind of a little bit of a conundrum that we're seeing here because we, we don't know if to say that he, he is a good king or not. I mean, on the road from Jericho up to Jerusalem, there was a blind guy, and this blind guy was able to see that Jesus was the son of David, and uh, he, he cries out to him. He wants to be healed. And then once he gets up to Jerusalem, the, the crowds are there. They're just crazy about him. They're, they're, they're throwing down uh, clothing. They're throwing down uh, Blankets, they're cutting down palm branches, they're putting them down, they're screaming, Hosanna, King, uh, son of David. They seem to be able to see that Jesus is this king, but as we look at this, 
The scenario has changed. There is an analogy of, of leadership that uses a, a bus. And uh, you think about a company as, as a bus, and, and everybody has a seat on the bus. And there's one person that drives the bus, and that's usually the, the CEO or whatever. And then there's different other seats in the bus. And, and according to this model of leadership, uh, you have to have everybody in the right seat. Sometimes there's a person in the back seat that really needs to be uh, more forward. Sometimes there's a person in the forward seat that needs to be pushed a little bit back or, or maybe even off. Where, where would we put Jesus on this, on this bus model? Could, could we really say that he needs to be in the driver's seat? What, what type of leadership model is this? He's arrested. He's not leading anything. They're carrying him away. They're, they're going to be him, and, and they've accused him. How, how is he the leader? <laughs> this is a failure, we would say. It hasn't fulfilled its purpose. He's not reigning. I mean, he's there when realizes he's the king. But, I mean, this thing is going to get a lot worse, as we see when we get down to verse 50. I mean, it's going to turn really, really... What type of leader do we... We wouldn't vote for somebody like this. Vote for me, I'm about to die. Okay. Who would do that? We don't look for world leaders like that. I'm about to get tortured. That's the one I want. We look at this and we think about purpose and good and is he fulfilling his purpose? And it really doesn't make sense how all this suffering and even death falls in line with God's sovereign plan. But we know that God is sovereignly working all things for his glory and for our good, even if we don't understand it. Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that Christians must live and die in complete surrender to God's sovereign control and benevolence towards them by uh, letting the just die for the unjust. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Christians must live and die. So this is something that we do on a daily basis, and then as we get close to death, we're also doing, and it's a complete surrender to God's control. And when I say complete surrender to God's control, I don't mean sitting down and just expecting God to do something. A complete surrender is an active obedience to God's word. That, that's what complete surrender is. It's an abandoning my way of life, my thoughts, my plans, my desires, and obeying God fully, that's a complete surrender, to God's sovereign control and his benevolence. And I specifically put benevolence in the just die for the unjust. Because there might be someone here who's saying, God's not benevolent. He's not a good God. Uh, I went through this marriage. It was a terrible marriage. I've had this boss. He's, he's been a terrible boss. He's given raises to everybody except to me. Or, or I've got through this sickness. Or I prayed for this healing, and he didn't heal. He's not good. At least in one way, God has been benevolent in that he allowed the just, that's Christ, to die for the unjust. And just so that we're clear, we're the unjust. Just, just put that out there in case we're wondering who the unjust is. That, that's us. He died for us. That's a benevolent God that did that. Now, as we're looking at this text, uh, the first point that we're going to see in verses 27 through 37 is that Jesus' surrender to God's will did not stop when life was unfair. 
Jesus' surrender to God's will did not stop when life was unfair. Here we see, verse 27, that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus. What do you mean they took Jesus? Well, who should they have taken? Well, the person that they had arrested was Barabbas, remember? He was the guilty one. He was the one that was supposed to be killed. But instead, they're taking Jesus. And they're taking him to the praetorium, and they're gathered. The whole Roman cohort, the whole group is there. Those who are there, and they're gathered specifically around him. All around him. And what they do is they strip off his clothes, and they put a a scarlet robe on him. There's two very, very costly dyes. One was purple and the other one was scarlet. And and this one is dyed in scarlet. It's it's extremely expensive. And it's interesting that they've got this on hand. Like like Matthew doesn't include that they ran out to Target and purchased this thing and came back with it. Like they've got it there with them. Because this isn't the first person that supposedly is going to overthrow Rome. And they've they've got everything they need. They've got thorns, and they start weaving it into a crown for him. Now, what type of thorns is this? There's many different thorn bushes. People have come up with all types of ideas, and they've tried to specify what type of thorn this is. It's it's really impossible to say, but there would be a certain irony in that the date palm uh, has palm branches, but it also has these uh, thorns on it. And the irony, of course, would be that uh, on Palm Sunday, they've uh, put the palm branches down, screaming out, Hosanna to the son of David, and now they're using the thorns of that same tree to make a crown for him. And they they make this crown, and they place it on him, and and they give him a reed for his right hand. And all of a sudden, they all start kneeling down before him. And they're mocking him, and they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. It's it's an incredible sight to see. Now, before we continue moving through the text, I just want to stop and and just make a really quick application about this. There's something very interesting in these things because if we kind of strip away a little bit what's going on, they've got this royal robe and they've placed it on him. and, And they are... They are bowing before him, and the words that they're saying are correct words. Hail, King of the Jews. It's a correct statement to say. In a certain way, it seems like this is very orthodox. This is really good that they're doing this. But but there seems to be a gap between this scene, where they're bowed down before him and what they're uttering, with The intentions of their heart, because Matthew tells us that the intentions of their heart is to mock, which has this idea to to make a fool of, to ridicule, to to make them look, uh, make him look dumb. There's a gap between what they are saying and what they're doing and their posture and the intention of their heart. And I wonder sometimes if maybe that happens in us. Where maybe we, we come to church and we'll sing the songs and we'll sing them correctly. All with the right intonation and everything. We might get a little carried away and, and lift the hand just a little bit, you know. Because we're kind of into it. 
And we might read the scripture with the elder and pronounce everything correctly. But it's all for mocking because Monday through Saturday we have no intention of handing over the sovereignty of our life to God. There's no intention at all. Because we're going to rule. We're in charge. We're going to say where we're going to go, how much money we're going to make, what we're going to be doing, and so forth and so on. I wonder if sometimes maybe this same gap that exists between the statements of the soldiers and what their intention is sometimes happens in our own lives and that we come here all dressed up, but there's a gap, a huge gap, with the intentions that we do sing our songs and so forth. Now, as we continue to look at our text, verse 32 uh, says that uh, they were coming out and they found a man. Uh, what they found, Matthew tells us, was a man, which is, of course, they're going to find there's a ton of men there at um, Jerusalem. Uh, is, Jews had to go up to Jerusalem for Passover. The whole family didn't have to go, but specifically the men had to go. So there would have been a lot of men that would travel to Jerusalem. The fact that they found a man um, seems kind of redundant. But this man is from uh, close uh, to an area in a city in, in Libya. His name is Simon. And he's traveled about 1,200 miles. Uh, in obedience to God's law, he has traveled this whole distance to get there. And they find him. Uh, whom they pressed or they obligated or they, they uh, compelled, they forced uh, into action, they forced him to do a specific service. And that service is to bear his cross. Now this word has this, uh, the, the word bear, uh, is used in a couple of different instances in the Gospel of Matthew. The first occurrence happens in Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. You'll know the, the context that's where Satan is trying to tempt Jesus, and he's telling them to, to jump off the top of the temple. And it says, because it is written that uh, uh, God will send forth his angels to, to bear up, to hold up Jesus. It's also used in two other places as an imperative, as a command. It's used in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That bearing my yoke, to take it up. And then it's also used in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where Jesus is exhorting his disciples, and he says, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wished to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is kind of a very literal fulfillment of of 1624, where here comes Simon, and he's actually taking the literal cross of, of Jesus, and he's going after him. Now, it records, Matthew records a specific place of where this crucifixion happened. He says uh, it happens at Golgotha, place of a skull. Now, why is it the place of a skull? Is it because it looked like the skull, or is it because a lot of executions happened there? Not really sure, but they, they give him wine to drink and they give him gall, which is to help kind of numb the pain. But he, he's not willing to drink it. 
He's in charge. He, he, he won't accept it. He wants to take the full force of God's wrath upon him. And it says um, that uh, he has this cross, and what type of cross is he bearing? Well, there's the St. Anthony's cross, which is more like an X form. Uh, I, I doubt that it was that one. There's also the, the, the T one. Uh, it has no top, but this is probably one that looks like a lowercase T because later on they're going to nail an inscription above his head. He's carrying this cross, and, and it says that they, they crucified him Verse 35, and when they crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves. Sitting down, they began to keep watch uh, over him. Now, this would have been kind of a, a boring type part. They got to make sure that no one comes and takes them off the cross and tries to heal them. They, they have to make sure that the prisoner who has been sentenced to death actually dies. But the process can take a, a long time. So now they just have to wait. They've divided the clothes. The clothes would have been theirs to have. And now they just have to sit around and wait for the person to actually die. Now, as we look at this, it says in verse 37 that they put above his head the charge that he's the king of the Jews. Now, Jesus' surrender to God's will did not stop when life was unfair. When we look at life, Life, uh, unfairness abounds around us. That's just the fact. Unfairness abounds all around us. If we just assume for a minute that uh, we can really judge this correctly, would we say that this judgment that was placed upon Jesus was a fair trial? I don't think I've heard anyone say that it was a fair trial. Even the most liberal scholars will say that this was skewed. But even though it's not fair, he continues to surrender to God's will. In other words, he doesn't say, well, life's unfair, so I no longer have to follow by God's rules. I get to make up my own rules. No, he doesn't do that. Sometimes our life is unfair. Maybe there's a Christian leader that failed us, a spouse that failed us, a government that failed us, an HOA that just won't approve our color, and it's not fair. Whatever the case might be, we have different situations. And, and there comes the, the crux of the matter. When life is unfair, do we continue to follow God's will? Or do we say, I'm under no obligation anymore to continue living the Christian life? I can do what I want. No one else is playing fair. I'm not going to play fair either. No one else is acting like Christ. I'm not going to act like Christ either. My spouse hits below the belt with a, with a little stinger. I'm going to do the same thing. I mean, we've got the whole marriage of, of situations that we can just pull, right? You know, somehow they all come floating to the mind and you just spout them out. Or do we continue living for God's purpose in our life? Now, there's a lot of unjust, unjust situations that happen. And sometimes God will put us in a situation that we're able to change something for the good. Uh, some type of situation happens and, and God places us right at the moment where we can have a positive influence in changing something from being unjust to just. But the majority of the times, 
It doesn't happen that way. We might pray and pray and pray for justice, but it doesn't happen. And I would just caution you about praying for justice. Because usually when we're praying for justice, we want uh, our situation to turn out just, but we don't want God's justice on us, right? We want God's mercy. So I would caution you about praying for justice. But many times we don't get justice. We'll live through this life and the situation won't correct itself. God will correct it in the future. But we should continue living for God's glory regardless if the situation becomes just or not in our lifetime. Now the next thing that we see about this when we think about Jesus surrendered to God's will did not stop when uh, life was fair is that cross-bearing uh, comes at the most inopportune times. Cross-bearing comes at the most inopportune times. There's this incredible irony in this narrative. I mean, it's, it's just incredible. Here's this guy, um, Simon, who's carrying this cross. We, we know from Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 21, that, that Jesus actually called Simon, who changed his name to Peter, to, to come follow him. There Peter was. He, he was cleaning his nets. He was getting ready to be able to continue fishing. But Jesus invites him to come and be fishers of men. And he goes. And as Peter, Simon, is going, he's hearing Jesus' teaching. He's seeing Jesus' miracles. He's seeing all these things. And at one point in his life, he even gets to the point where he says, you know, if I have to die for you, I'll do it. We'll die together. Incredible statement. But Simon left. He's not here. We're introduced to this other Simon. This guy who is probably a Jew. He's obeying God's law. He came to Israel to celebrate the Passover. He doesn't seem to be a follower of Jesus. He travels all the way from North Africa on the other side of Egypt, crosses Egypt, goes up all the way to Jerusalem. And he's there. Simon seems to be there by chance. The soldiers just happened to find him. Do you think when Simon got up in the morning, he started doing some stretches? He's like, today I'm going to be bearing Christ's cross. I've got to stretch really good. I want to get a cramp while I'm doing that. Do you think he was thinking that in the morning when he got up? Or do you think when he put his clothes on, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to put this shirt on. I might get a little bloody with, you know, the cross and everything. I'm just going to put an old T-shirt on so that I don't mess up my good clothes. He, he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem for, for the Passover. What type of clothes is he wearing? Probably the best ones he has. Oh, it's so inopportune when it's time to bear the cross, isn't it? Like, couldn't he have done this at a better time? Couldn't this have happened at a, a more opportune time? Now, we look at this, and we think about uh, if we were there. Let's assume for a moment that we're there, and would we carry cross Christ, uh, Christ's cross? Would we be willing to do that? We probably would all answer, Amen, I'm, I'm there. Put me at the front of the line. I'll bear his cross. But I think that a, a good indicator of if we're willing to do this or not would be reflected in our daily activities. 
Simon traveled about 1,200 miles just to get to Passover to obey God's law. It required finances, planning ahead. It required a sacrifice of traveling. What if somebody robbed him on the way? What happened if he left his family and his home? What if something... It required a lot of sacrifice. How much thought do we put into obeying God? It'll determine how willing we are to take up the cross and follow him. Is it an afterthought? Like, oh, I should have obeyed God. Well, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Sorry. We keep on with life. How much are we willing to sacrifice? 1,200 miles worth? How much finances is required to do this? See, it's in our daily activities of the things that we do that really reflect if we would be in this situation willing to carry Christ's cross. You might say, well, uh, he's, he's called that, but he, he might have moved there years before and he just they kept the nickname. Well, in that case, if you want to argue from that point of view, still Simon is there close to where Christ is at. In other words, he, he's not on the other side of Jerusalem. He's still... He's right there where he could be picked and chosen to carry the cross. Now, how willing, how close are you to Christ to be able to take this responsibility? Some might say, well, praise the Lord, I've, I've been walking with the Lord for many years. There, there was a time in my life where I recognized that I was a sinner, that there was nothing I could do to save myself, my sins separated me from God, but God in his mercy and grace, the Spirit convicted me of my sin. I understood my need for a Savior. I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and daily I look to walk with him so that I can bear the cross. And I say, praise the Lord. But for some, maybe that's not your testimony at all. Maybe there's never been a moment where... You've recognized your sin, yeah. But hey, we're all bad, right? And we just have to, we have to try because God blesses those who try. No. You don't have a relation. You're not close to Christ because you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And the first thing would be to accept Christ as your Savior. And then you can take up the cross and follow after him. Now as we look at this, we see that Jesus surrendered to God's will did not stop when life was unfair. He, he continued following after God. How, how do you do that in your own life? How willing are you to continue following after God even when life is unfair? You say, well, if it's not going to be fair, I'm not going to do it. Oh, that shows where our desires are. Now, our second point and we'll only get through part of our second point. Uh, and there's a third point, but uh, we're not going to get to that third point. Uh, God's, uh, God's sovereign will was not ignored when another option was available. Now, this, this is kind of tricky because we're talking about God's sovereign will, and then we're talking about other options that are available. And uh, that causes a bit of a conundrum for some of us. How can you have God's sovereign will and then have other options. 
Well, the best illustration that I can see of this is thinking about the, the garden, the Garden of Eden. Was it God's sovereign will that they not eat of the fruit? Of course, that's what he expressed. To, to argue anything otherwise is that God would have said to them, don't eat of it, but he really meant go ahead and eat it. And that would be absurd. You'd have God being disingenuous, and that causes a lot more theological problems. God's sovereign will was, don't eat the fruit, because on the day you eat it, you will surely die. But what did they do? They went and ate it. So there's a way that sometimes there's this sovereign will, and yet sometimes there's these other options, but Christ doesn't take these other options. Here we see in verse 38, it says, At that time there were two robbers, and they were crucified with him. And where are they? They're on the right, and, and one's on the left. Now, if you remember, it's kind of interesting because the, the phraseology takes us back to uh, James and, and John's mother. What, what, was the, what was her request? Hey, well, when you establish your kingdom, I want my sons to be on your left and on your right. Remember, that's what, what she wanted. I wonder if right now she's still wanting that. Or she's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I like, maybe we should ask James and John. Oh, they're not there. They're nowhere to be found. Two robbers are. And who's supposed to be there in the middle? Oh, it's supposed to be Jesus. Uh, it's supposed to be uh, Barabbas. But in place of Barabbas, it's, it's Jesus. He's being a substitute for him. Now, it says that people are passing by and they're, they keep on saying these insults to him. And they're shaking their heads. No against him. And they give him these different options. Look at the options that they give him. They said, if you're the son of God, which is a very interesting phrase. The phrase occurs in uh, two other places. Uh, and the exact phrase, if you are the son of God, uh, appears in two other places in the Gospel of Matthew. The first place is Matthew 4, uh, 3, and it's when Jesus is tempting uh, sorry, when Satan is tempting Jesus, and he says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. The other place that it happens is, again, Satan uh, tempting Jesus in, in 4.6. So here, this exact phraseology is used, if you are the son of God, uh, kind of takes us back to that incidence of the temptation. It seems like another temptation. Look for another way. Don't follow God's will. Well, what can he do? Well, you can come down off the cross. They, they give them that option. They say, uh, in the same way, the, the, the priests and the scribes and the elders, they're all mocking him. What do they say? Uh, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. They even entice him. Hey, if you come down off the cross, we're going to believe. Well, I mean, isn't that why Christ came? For that people would believe? No, Christ came to glorify God. And that some will believe. They offer them, you saved other people. Why don't you save yourself? They give him all these different options that he could take. But he doesn't do them. Why does he not do them? Because he desired God more than he desired self. As long as we desire self more than God, we'll always look for other options than God's sovereign will. We will. We'll look for all types of alternatives as long as we desire self more than God. But when we desire God, we'll follow him. 
Now, as we think about this and apply it to our lives, I wonder, as we're getting ready for Christmas and we're thinking about everything, how much our desire for God is and how much our desire for self. We can determine that by looking at how we spend, what we spend time on, what we are involved in. Do we really desire God more than desire self? <coughs> Let's bow our heads. Father, <coughs> I pray now as we consider this text and apply it, that there be someone here that's not say that today can be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that uh, for other of us, that maybe we've been desiring ourselves more than desiring you, that we can repent of that. Father, I pray also that we can seek to live for you regardless if life is fair or not, because it comes from a desire to want you more than anything else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll sing this song of invitation.